0: All right. We're, as we continue our verse by verse study through the book of Galatians, Paul letter, Paul's letter to a group of churches that he was instrumental in planting in an area called Galatia, we, we've talked about how that the sort of the theme of this whole letter is the gospel-centered church, and we've been seeing as we've been unfolding this just uh, what that means. What does a gospel-centered church look like? And so today we're talking about the gospel and righteousness. And righteousness is one of those sort of 10 dollar words, right? You know, it's it's a big word, it's it's a it's a loaded word, it's a word that means different things to different people. And so when we talk about righteousness when Paul in verse 6 of chapter 3 in quoting Genesis 15:6 when he talks about that God accounted to Abraham uh, accounted to Abraham righteousness, what does he mean by righteousness? What's that word mean? Well, we have to understand that when we talk about something being righteous, we're talking about, first and foremost, righteous describing an attribute of God. And it's that that attribute of God that that means that all that He does, He does right. Whatever God does is right. All that He does is equitable. It's fair. It's just. It's good. And so when we talk about righteous, we're talking about the actions of God that display the character of God. The psalmist said this in Psalm 11, verse seven. It said, "For the Lord is righteous; He loves righteousness, and He His countenance beholds the upright." Or you could say the righteous. And so, when we talk about righteousness, we're talking about that which is part of the character of God or the attributes of God. His right actions that are demonstrated that are demonstrating His right character. When we talk about righteousness, we're talking about that which conforms to His righteous character. And so you see in the Old Testament that the Old Testament is is brought forth. The law of God was brought forth is that which sort of dictates what the righteousness of God is. What does God consider right behavior? What's right in God's eyes? And so we look at, say, the moral law, the Ten Commandments, and we see what's right in God's eyes is that we don't kill. What's right in God's eyes is that we don't steal. What's right in God's eyes is that we honor our mother and father. What 's right in god 's eyes is that we worship him and him alone what 's right in god 's eyes is that we have we, we make no false image of God either either in our minds or with our hands so that 's what 's right in god 's eyes so in a sense, the moral law is meant to reflect the righteousness of god so when we 're talking about righteousness we 're not just talking about something casual, nor are we talking about just rules and regulations. We're talking about that which flows from the person of God Himself. And it's important that we understand that. Because all of us, to varying degrees, have our own definition of righteousness. If you've never stepped foot in church before today, you have an idea of what righteousness is, what is right and what is wrong. Even if you believe that that's all relative, that whatever is right is right for you, and it could be wrong for somebody else, you still have a measurement of righteousness. Now, more than that, the Bible also talks about righteousness, or the person who is righteous is the person who is not just conforming to a moral code, but a person who is in, in, in understanding and recognizing the righteousness of God is walking in right relationship to God. So when the Bible talks about relationship, or or I'm sorry, when the Bible talks about righteousness, it's talking about those who walk in right relationship with God, recognizing Him as a righteous God. Now, here's the thing. Because God is, whether we believe in Him or not, whether we love Him or not, because God is, all of us in one sense have a relationship to Him. In the same way, if you might not have ever known your earthly Father, you may have never met the man, but the bottom line is you have a relationship with him in the fact that he provided the genetic information for you to be created. The fact that you, that he, you came from his loin, so to speak, means that you have a relationship with him. You don't have a good relationship with him. You don't have a personal relationship with him, but you are related to him in some way. And we have to get that through our heads. It's not as if we're, when we talk about a relationship with God that we're talking about just that which makes us feel good or some idea about God being a father figure which comforts us. We're talking about God who is and how we relate to Him. So we all have a relationship with God, every single one of us, but here's the deal, not all of us have a right relationship with God. Not all of us are righteous. Not all of us are relating to God in a way that God says, that's righteous in my sight. And so what's happening here is Paul's going to deal with this. Now he's going to deal with this because when he had gone to Galatia, that area and to different cities in Galatia, and he had preached Jesus to these people, he had preached Jesus as the way to know their creator God. And these people were pagans. These people weren't weren't those who were, you know, sort of trying to worship the God of the Bible through Judaism. Uh, These guys were Gentiles. They were pagans. They were worshiping probably trees and spirits of trees and, and animals, and all kinds of different ideas. Probably some, some had some ideas about uh, about the gods that were, were Greek in nature. And basically, these guys didn't have an idea of the true Creator God in the way that Jews do, in the way that we even do. And so when Paul preached Jesus to these guys, he said, listen, this is how you know God. This is how you're in a right relationship with God. It can only happen through Jesus. But what happened in Galatia? Remember the whole reason he had to write this letter? Is after Paul preached the gospel, after Paul preached Jesus to these guys, these false preachers came in, these guys that we call Judaizers. And when they came in, they came in, Oh, that's good, you believe in Jesus. Well done, that's great. We think he's the Messiah, and you should believe in him, but you also need to be Jewish. You need to be circumcised. That's the that's the sign of the covenant that you're right with God. And you know, you, you also need to keep the moral law of God, you need to keep the Ten Commandments, you need to keep the ceremonial law of God, you need to keep the civil laws of God. Best you can, you got to do that. you got to make sure that the sacrifices are still taking place. I mean, okay, yeah, Jesus died, but you know, that wasn't really quite enough. And so Paul had to write this letter. Now at the heart of the issue is just this. It's about righteousness. It's about how does an individual have a right relationship with God. That's how big this issue is. It's bigger than just how are we going to do church or what culture are we a part of or how do we relate to the culture that we're in. This has to do with, how is a person right with God? It's probably the biggest gospel issue. You might say it's the gospel truth of the gospel truth. Now, it's important to recognize as well, as the psalmist said in, one, in Psalm 145, that the, the righteousness of God is not his only attribute. The psalmist says, The Lord is righteous in all his ways, gracious in all his works. The Lord is near to all who call upon Him, to all who call upon Him in truth. And that last part, verse 18, is going to be crucial for later on. Now we see when Paul starts this section off, he, he's, if you remember last, last week we ended in, in, in verse uh, 21 of chapter 2, where Paul says, I don't set aside or frustrate the grace of God, for if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died in vain. And so he sort of ends one idea or, or sort of has this idea of, hey, Christ died in vain if you can be right with God by your works. And then he goes in to say, man, you Galatians, how stupid can you be? Now, the word foolish, here there's two words for that sort of in, in, in the original language. One means, one's where we get the English word moron, which means you're not too bright, you know, you're not the sharpest tool in the shed, you know what I'm talking about. That's one rule. And there's another rule, or another word, that's, uh, that means that basically, it's not that you don't have the capacity to think, but you're just not using your brain. You're just not using your brain. That's the word he uses here when he says, Oh foolish Galatians, or when he says in verse 3, Are you so foolish? He's like going, he's saying, Guys, are you not using your brain? Are you not thinking about these things? And it's interesting because in the section that we're going to look at today, Paul kind of Deals with, he argues with them about about their idea of righteousness from from two things. One from their own experience, their own conversion experience. These guys had, according to how Paul's treating them, these guys had legitimate conversion experiences. They really knew Jesus, and yet they're going back or they're wanting to sort of now sort of become Jewish in some way. But he's also going to deal with them from the Old Testament scriptures, and so we're going to look at both. Now notice he says, O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It's important that you notice that because when he says that this word bewitched, it's this idea that, that, you know, who's cast you under a spell? And, and this is one of the, the places in Galatians where Paul's using some sort of, some seriously cutting words. And he's kind of saying to these guys, um, you know, he's saying, listen, you know, th- this fact that you would be wanted to become sort of Jewish before you're Christians or go under Judaism, it's just as superstitious as you were before. It's as if some witch doctor came along and sort of cast a spell on you and you were like, oh, I got to believe, I got to believe. We watched this really silly movie last night as a family called Planet 51 and it's about you know uh, you know like an astronaut going to an alien planet and they're all afraid of him as if we would be afraid of aliens and and part of the part of the sort of plot that happens is they convince themselves that the aliens can control their minds. And so this astronaut kind of says, oh, I'm controlling you. And they're like, oh, that he's controlling me now. And they've convinced themselves they can be controlled. They're just sort of so superstitious of what aliens might be, they convince themselves they're going to be controlled. In a sense, that's what what he's saying here. And it says, Paul's going, who's mind-controlling you, you know? Who's bewitching you? Are, are you guys really that stupid? Are you really that gullible, basically, that you'd be sucked into this? And the first thing he brings up, the first thing he talks about their experience is this. In verse 1, he says... You know, that you would not obey the truth before whose eyes Jesus Christ was clearly betrayed among you as crucified. Now what we're going to see in this first section, the first four verses, is Paul asking these sort of rhetorical questions about what they experienced when he preached the gospel to them. And the first thing he sort of brings up is this reality that, hey, when I was with you, didn't I preach the gospel, didn't I preach Jesus Christ crucified to you? And these rhetorical questions kind of expose the fact that these guys were, these, these people in Galatia, were not thinking through the issue and just sort of taking at face value what the Judaizers were saying and and were basically believing something foolish. So we're going to end this first section. In in, in four verses, we're going to look at basically what I'm going to call four foolish beliefs. And the first foolish belief that these guys sort of were, were getting sucked into was this idea that Christ crucifixion isn't enough. Oh, it wasn't enough. Okay, yeah, we know Jesus was crucified. We understand that happened historically, and we believe He was the Messiah, but that really wasn't enough to pay for our sin. That's interesting because when you read the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, just think about it. You guys who just even have the most basic understanding of the Gospels, how much time does each author spend on the death of Jesus? Not just the fact that he did die, but in detail how he died. His, his, his betrayal, his arrest, his crucifixion. There's much given to how he would die. All throughout the Gospels, you see over and over again, Jesus predicting his own death. The focus, the pinnacle of each of the four Gospels is the death of Jesus. Paul, when he went to, to Corinth and he preached the gospel, he said, I don't want to know anything among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Jesus, when he was on the cross, after being on the cross for over three hours, after the Gospels record that there was three hours of darkness when, by which we, we believe that God was pouring out his wrath, because it was a supernatural darkness the the, the the Gospels teach. It says after that three hours of darkness, Jesus uttered these three words, at least three words in English, it's in our English Bibles, but one word in Greek, the one word is tetelestai, in English it is, it is finished. Literally, it's paid in full. He said that after, right, right before he gave up the ghost. Now, the Bible says this. Paul said this in 1 Corinthians 1.18. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved is the power of God. You see, guys, the, it, it, it's, it's foolishness to us, to think one guy could pay for our sins if we're really not being saved. We really don't see our need to be saved or we think somehow we can save ourselves. This idea that Jesus, one man's death, can pay for all of our sins, that seems like foolishness. But to those of us who are being saved, to those of us who know how much we need to be saved, to us it's the power of God. You see, this idea that that was, was sort of coming into the churches in Galatia through the Judaizers that Christ's cross wasn't enough, Paul says, how stupid can you be? If Christ's death wasn't enough, then he died in vain. If you can somehow add to it, then what was the point of it? It's amazing how clever false teachers can become with this kind of stuff. You know, Jehovah's Witnesses, if you ask them, do you believe Jesus died for your sins? They'll say, oh, definitely. Uh, I, I couldn't be right with God unless Jesus died for my sins. Well, that sounds like the gospel, doesn't it? Except for what they believe is, well, what Jesus' death did is it sort of just even the, the balances. It kind of brought us back to square one. So from now on, as long as we go door to door and do the things we're supposed to do and fulfill the law, blah blah do all that the Watchtower organization tells us to do, then maybe we'll get to spend a thousand years on earth. Now, th- that's the thing, guys, is this is a, one of the indications of a cult group. It's not because just they ask for money or they're trying to control you. It's the reality that they say, they say, you have to follow us to be right with God. When the gospel says, you have to follow Jesus to be right with God. You have to be saved by Him and Him crucified. Now, guys, Paul's saying, Paul's saying, there's nothing but Christ crucified. It's a foolishness for us to think what he did on the cross wasn't enough. Then he says this in verse 2. He says, this I only want to learn from you. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? Now when he talks about the works of the law, it's this idea that that not just knowing what the Ten Commandments are, knowing what the law commands, but actually doing those things. When you When you're actually living by the law, you are doing what God commands. And the, and the Judaizers had this, this idea, this mindset, that if, if they would do all that God requires, then God would pour out His Spirit on them. They were not surprised that God would pour out His Spirit on His people. They saw how the Old Testament had predicted that God was going to pour out His Spirit on all flesh in the last times. They had read the prophet Joel. They knew that was the case. But they made the bigger mistake of thinking, okay, that the 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 issue is we have to be right. If we do all that's right before God, then God will pour out his spirit on us. Then the spirit will begin to work in our in our lives. Now this is this this lie, guys, this false idea that the Spirit's work is dependent upon our work, this false idea we're going to get into in depth when we get to chapter five. And it is a false idea. Anybody who tells you, you can't be full of the Holy Spirit, or you, the Holy Spirit won't work in you unless you do what's right before God, doesn't understand the work of the Spirit. Now, I am not saying at all that you can do whatever you want and the Holy Spirit's going to use you. Of course not. Of course not. But we'll talk about that when we get to Galatians chapter 5. But here's the reality. Do you remember what, what Jesus talked about when he began to tell the disciples of the work of the Holy Spirit in John chapter 16? He said that when the Spirit comes, what will He do? He will convict the world. Who's the world? Those who are yet not to be saved. He will convict the world of sin and of judgment and of righteousness. He will convict the world of me, basically, of what what I show about those things. That's what the Holy Spirit's going to do. How can If that's what the Holy Spirit's work is, if that's the beginning of the Holy Spirit's work, how can you earn it? If the Holy Spirit's work is to show you, you fall short of, you sin, and, you know, you're under judgment, and you fall short of righteousness, if that's the work of the Holy Spirit, then how is it that you have to be righteous for Him to show you that? doesn't make any sense. How foolish is that? Can you earn the work of the Spirit? Absolutely not. Now, again, we'll go into detail in this when we get to Galatians chapter 5, but suffice it to say, that was one of the foolish beliefs that was creeping into the, the the churches in Galatia. We have to earn the work of the Spirit. Now then look at verse 3. He says, Are you so foolish, having begun in the Spirit, are you now being made perfect by the flesh? So it's almost like Paul's presupposing the idea, okay, okay, you're right, you're right. We, we can't earn the work of the Spirit, but he starts the process and we finish it. Sort of like the JW say. He, he starts the process and we finish it. Is that what the Bible says? Now the Bible says in Philippians one six that he who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it unto the day of Jesus Christ. So it's the the work of the Spirit isn't something that we finish. God Himself has to make this happen. Then He says this in verse four. He says, "Have you suffered so many things in vain? If indeed it was in vain." Now there's a reality that the, the churches in Galatia were persecuted for coming to faith. If you read Acts 13 14, and 14, you'll see like where Paul would be preaching in the city of Lystra, which is in one of the cities of Galatia, and you know he, God used him to heal a man, did this radical thing, or used him to heal a man, and then and then they're like, wow, what an amazing thing! And then what happens is Paul begins to preach the gospel, and they're angry at him, and so then they basically you know uh, they want him dead. They they actually stone him to death hit him with rocks until they, they think he's dead, you know, and leave him for dead. And so when, when people came to faith, they came to faith in the cities of Galatia, they came to faith in a hostile environment. So they were suffered persecution for their faith. And so, and, and so you get this mindset that what, what's happening is, is that the Judaizers were coming in and going, man, you guys are going through a lot of suffering. You know, it's not God's will for you to suffer. If you were really right with God, you wouldn't suffer this way. You see, the reason you're not right with God is because you think it was—it's all about Jesus' cross, and it's more than just Jesus' cross. You got something you got to do, and, and you're not right with God, and you're suffering because you know you're thinking, well, uh, you're thinking, well, okay, the Holy Spirit does this work, but you know, actually, you got to finish the work the Holy Spirit starts. You know, and, and you're not right with God because you know, really, the problem is, is that you know, well, you you just. You think that, that that you can just kick back and just rejoice in Jesus when really the bottom line is, is that you've got a lot of work to do if you're going to really see God move. And the Jews came in and they burdened these guys to the place. They just thought, oh wow, we are going through a hard time. We really want that hard time to cease. Maybe if we act Jewish, the Jewish people won't pick on us. And maybe if we start just going to the, to, to the, the synagogues, then the Romans won't pick on us because that's a it's a legal religion, it's, it's legal to be Jewish in the Roman Empire, and maybe if we stop talking about Jesus being the only way to everybody and just kind of keep this to ourselves, then maybe the, the Greek culture won't pick on us. Maybe suffering will stop. One of the reasons, guys, often that false teachings creep into churches and movements is because we don't want to be persecuted anymore. We're sick of everybody calling us or treating us like we're the odd ones out. Now, I'll I'll be the first to say it's very difficult to be the odd one out. It's really hard to feel like, you know, you're trying to stand up for something and everybody thinks you're in that case. It's really hard. I've been in that situation before when I did youth work in the States and we used to have these uh, youth pastors meetings and plan events together and, and I'll tell you the first couple of years of trying to do this it was tough because they would like oh we got this idea and that idea and they had some brilliant ideas I mean some of the things we did were pretty amazing things as far as you know platforms to share the gospel but then when it came to share the gospel like, oh, you know let's not make it heavy let's just tell people God loves them and they can come talk to somebody afterwards or you know let's just let's just say you know what you know let's make sure that we don't say anything that will offend the Catholics don't ever offend the Catholics you can't do that in a Hispanic community bad thing to do right don't do that and it was always like, guys, listen, I know where you're coming from, but if we don't share the gospel, what's the point of having the event? If we get a thousand kids to show up and they don't hear about the, the who Jesus really is and the fact that righteousness with God only comes through him, what's the point? And it was like they're always like, Dude, you're always Mr. Bible, you Mr. Jesus all the time. I always on my case about it. And you know, I wasn't like I was going, I'll stand for God, I'm not afraid. I'd go, well, you know, let me pray about it. And I'd go back and go, oh, Lord, am I just being an idiot? Am I being a Pharisee? Because they'd call me a Pharisee. And like, no, I'm not being a Pharisee. I just want to stand up for, I just want Jesus to be preached. It's just the opposite. I don't want to be a Pharisee. I want this to be about Jesus. And it, was, it took a couple years, man, of fighting. And it took, actually, it took another brother coming in who believed the same thing that we could say, no, man, we have to either unify the gospel or there's no unity. And then we could unify around the gospel. And then we saw God do some pretty radical things. But the bottom line is this, guys, it's not easy. It's not easy when you're you're wanting to, to, to continue to proclaim what you first believed. That salvation, your salvation, is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And you know you can't add from that. And you know you can't take away from that. When people start going, nah, I don't know, man, I think you're off with that. Especially other religious people. Man, is it hard to stand. And yet Paul, in asking these questions to these guys, is saying, "Listen. Guys, I'm not talking to you about theoretical issues. You heard Christ crucified. In fact, when he says in verse one about who was betrayed before or, or uh, sorry, portrayed before you, it's the idea that I put it on a billboard. Paul says, I painted such a a picture through my preaching that you saw the nails in his hands and the nails in his feet and the hole in his side. You heard him say, it is finished. These guys didn't actually witness Christ crucified, but Paul's saying, I preached it so clear to you, you couldn't deny that's the fact. Paul's saying, we saw the Holy Spirit work among you. He mentions miracles in verse 5. He says, we saw God do radical things, confirming the word with signs and wonders following. Just what Jesus said would happen in Mark 16. We saw the Holy Spirit's work among you. We saw you blessed and freed and relating to God rightly. What happened? What happened is you started believing these stupid ideas that came from these Judaizers. Guys, listen. I think the Spirit of God would say to us, Hey, Servants Church, are you so foolish? Are you so foolish? You've begun in the Spirit. You, you've, you've known that it's got to be about Jesus. It's always about Jesus. It's always going to be about Jesus. We're saved by Jesus and for Jesus. We know God because of Jesus. We relate to God through Jesus. Are you so foolish? Are we so foolish? We're thinking, yeah, you know, it's about Jesus, but you know, what about this? And maybe we need that. Maybe if we can get that. No. Even our own experience would say, you know what, we just simply need to keep, our, our, keep looking to Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. We need to look to him. Now, I, I want to give you guys something to look up for homework. 1 Peter chapter 4. Look at 1 Peter chapter 4 verses 12 to 19. I was going to go through this today, but I think I'll, I'll hold back and you guys can look it up for homework. But suffice it to say in 1 Peter chapter 4, Peter makes a very clear argument, in fact, actually through the whole book of 1 Peter, makes it very clear about how normal it is for us to suffer because of the gospel. Normal man. Everyday life for the Christian. We're going to suffer because of the gospel. He talks about it. He talks about what good suffering is and what bad suffering is. <laughs> He talks about this, that he talks about in, in verse 1 of chapter 4 uh, that, that we need to arm ourselves with a mind to suffer. We need to know that this is what's going to happen. So, guys, I, I'm sharing this with you because, listen, I know sometimes our experience tells us, you know, it's not always so great to believe in Jesus because we're going through difficult things because we're suffering. But when you're at that place, listen, when you're at that place, be careful because the enemy wants to take advantage of your vulnerability. He wants to be with you. He wants you to think, you see, you're suffering because you think Jesus is enough. He's not. You thought that cross was enough, but it's not. You're suffering because you don't really have the Holy Spirit. You'd have the Holy Spirit if you kept the law. If you'd obey more, you'd have the Holy Spirit, but you don't. So, you know, that's why you're going through this. You know, you'd, you'd, you'd really experience these radical things of God if you would just know that it's you who has to finish what God started. And these sort of things can creep in. They can creep in, guys, because we begin to suffer and we don't want to suffer anymore. They can creep in because in our pride we think, yeah, yeah, I think I can. I think I bring something to the table. Yeah, okay, God saves me, but I bring something to the table. And Be careful. Watch out for that foolishness. Use your brains, guys. Think about the gospel that saved you. Now, Paul then switches gears and he goes from just talking about their experience to talking about the scripture. He says in verse, in verse 5, he says this, Therefore, he who supplied the Spirit to you and works miracles among you, does he do it? Notice it's, he says it's an ongoing thing. Does he do it by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? Just as Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. Now, in the first section I talked about four sort of foolish beliefs. You know, in case you were taking notes and you didn't get these, here's the four foolish beliefs. Christ crucified isn't enough. Foolish belief. The Spirit's work is dependent upon our own work. Foolish belief. We need to finish what God start, what God's Spirit starts. Foolish belief. Suffering means you're not really right with God. Foolish belief. Those are foolish beliefs that the enemy wants to bring in. Now, in what he says in this last section, I'm going to bring out, I want to bring out to you guys three truths that set you free. three liberating truths that are really important for us to grasp. First, he says this. He says, in in talking about the work that God had done among them, he uses the most famous, you might even say the most popular Old Testament figure to the Jews, Abraham. If you remember in John chapter 8, that the Jews who were attacking Jesus, coming against Jesus and confronting Jesus... Were, were, were using, were, they were playing dirty. And they said, we have Abraham as our father, we're not really sure who your father is. And when they said, we have Abraham as their father, they were basically betraying this reality that they believed because they were physical descendants of Abraham, that made them right with God. Do you guys realize there's a quote-unquote Christian denomination that actually believes that, but in the sense of those who have been saved? In a sense, that's what the closed brethren believe. They believe you actually have to be born into the church. You have to actually be born in. You have to be sort of somehow related to somebody in the church. That's the way it has to be. So no one's allowed, invited to their church unless they've you know, they already been saved as, as, as far as they're concerned. The people actually believe that. It's crazy, but they believe that. That's closed brethren, by the way. The open brethren are different. they, they are lovely people in the open brethren. Closed brethren, not so good. <laughs> But the reality is this. These, these Judaizers had that idea. Hey, we're the, we're the sons of Abraham. And because we're physical descendants of Abraham, that makes us right with God. And yet the interesting thing about Abraham is, Abraham was way before the law even came. They're telling these Gentiles, you have to, if you want to be a son of Abraham, you have to keep the law. Forgetting that Abraham was several hundred years before the law was even given. Now I want you to keep your, your thumb in Galatians, and turn back a few books to Romans chapter 4. We're going to go back and forth to Romans 4 over the next few minutes as we finish this section. Romans 4. So in Galatians, go back towards the front of your Bible. you got two Corinthians, then one Corinthians, then Romans. Romans chapter 4, starting at verse 1. Now, know that what Paul is quoting in verse 6, as I said before, is Genesis chapter 15, verse 6. Genesis fifteen six is what he's quoting in Galatians 3, 6, okay? Now, Romans chapter 4, verse 1. Paul writes this. He says, What shall we say that Abraham, I'm sorry, What then shall we say that Abraham our father has found according, been found according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified, or made righteous, you could say, made right with God by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. But on the contrary, what does the Scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness. So Paul in Romans 4 is making this argument even clearer. He's saying, listen, here's the deal If we say Abraham was right with God because of the works that he did, if we say that, then Abraham can boast and say, God owes me something because I was good and I did what I was supposed to do. So God owes me something. He made me a promise to to give me this child when I couldn't have a child. And he's done that. You know why? Because I'm good and I'm doing what I'm supposed to do. He could boast. That's why it says in verse 4, Now to him who works, the wages are not counted as grace, but as debt. Do you understand the point that Paul's making? Paul's basically saying this, Faith is saying, God, I believe in your grace. Or I believe that you've given me something. You've given me a free gift. Grace is God's favor. God's unmerited favor. God's undeserved favor. Faith says, God, you've given me this free gift. That's faith. It's that faith that Paul says, both in Galatians 3 and Romans 4, that that Abraham exercised, and God says, for that, I count you as righteous. Now, what about works? What if he was saying, hey, I've done these good things. Well, when it's works, it's not faith and it's not grace. When it's works, it's debt. In other words, he says, now to him who works, the wages are not counted as grace, but as debt. In other words, instead of the attitude of God's given me this free gift of righteousness, of a right relationship with him, instead it's like God owes me a right relationship with him. God owes me this. It's my wages. He's indebted to me. Guys, get it through your head once and for all. God will never, ever indebt himself to anybody. He cannot be indebted to anybody. It's impossible for God to be indebted to anybody. And when we make the mistake of thinking, well, yeah, the the cross was good, but not quite enough. Or, yeah, I need the Holy Spirit, so if I just do good, then God will owe me the Holy Spirit. God will have to. He'll, uh, he's obligated to give me the Holy Spirit if I do these things. If that is our mindset, we're not talking about the gospel of grace. We're talking about works. We're talking about something else. Still in Romans 4, look. drop down to verse 9. Remember how I said that this verse that he quotes, both in Romans 4 and in Galatians 3, was Genesis fifteen six. Well, listen to verse 9 of chapter 4. He says this, Does this blessedness then come upon the circumcised only or upon the uncircumcised also? Now remember the Judaizers in Galatians. What's the deal? They're saying, listen, if you want to be a Christian, you've got to be a Jew first, and that includes being circumcised. Okay? So Paul's bringing up this sort of issue even to the church in Rome. He says, For I say that the faith was accounted to Abraham for righteousness. How then was it accounted? While he was circumcised or uncircumcised? Not while circumcised, but while uncircumcised. Now, here's the the reality. God, at a certain time, did tell Abraham, Abraham, I want you as a son of the covenant to be circumcised. Abraham did that. But that was Genesis chapter 17. When did God declare Abraham righteous? Genesis chapter 15. Not just two chapters, but almost a decade before. Declared him as righteous. See, the point is this. The point is not about, hey, circumcision's bad, don't do that thing. The point is, when we start having this mindset that says, I have to do this thing to get right with God. I have to make this thing happen to be right with God. We're not understanding or relating to God by the grace of the gospel. If righteousness comes from the works of the law, then God owes us a right relationship if we fulfill the law. But if righteousness only comes through the grace given at Jesus, it's a free gift. You can't add to it. You can't take away from it. Now, keeping your finger in Romans 4, because we will go back to there in a minute, go back to Galatians 3. Galatians 3. Now, this is a liberating truth, guys. Abraham was righteous before the law was ever given. You know what that means? That God can declare a person righteous and it has absolutely nothing to do With the works of the law. Nothing to do with it. That's good news, man. That's good news because when someone wants to come and say, we still have to keep the law, hey, bro, you know, it's good that you believe in Jesus, but the Sabbath really is Friday night to Saturday night. And so if you're not fellowshipping on the Sabbath, you're breaking the law of God. You're not really right with God. They're adding to the gospel, they're adding to the gospel because the gospel's got nothing to do with the law of God, in the sense that it's not, it's not believing in Jesus plus fulfilling the law of God. Now, moving, moving forward in verse 7, it says, Therefore know that only those who are of faith are the sons of Abraham. Look what he says in verse 8. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, Listen, that God would look at Gentiles and say, you are right with me. Look at people who had nothing to do with the law whatsoever and say, you are right with me. Paul says the scripture foresaw that when it says this to Abraham, okay? When it preached the gospel to Abraham before and saying, in you all the nations shall be blessed. And that's actually Genesis 12. In you all the nations shall be blessed. Guys, listen, this brings another liberating truth. Listen. Not only is is our salvation, is our right place with God, have nothing to do with us keeping the law, but listen, anybody, listen, anybody can be in a right relationship with God. It It has nothing to do with your ethnicity, has nothing to do with your culture, has nothing to do with your genealogy. Your relationship with God, being in a right relationship with God, has nothing to do with any of those things. It has only to do with God saying, you are righteous. And he does so only on the basis of what Christ has done. Because that's good news. It's good news is that you don't have to go to servant's church to be right with God. You don't have to be white Anglo to be right with God. You don't have to have a Jewish background to be right with God. You don't have to conform to some set of rules and regulations to be right with God. What do you need to do? Believe that what God provided for you in Christ is enough. That's it. That's it. God's going to justify me or other Gentiles based only on that? Yep. That's the good news, man. That's the good news. The good news is you can be in a right relationship. God can look at you and say, you are righteous. Why? Because of what Jesus did and nothing else. Guys, listen. That's how God has always intended to save people. That has how God has always saved people. God, have, God, God has always saved people by grace through faith. The gospel is and always has been, and always will be, by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. Any addition to it, it's a false gospel, and foolishness. Now, lastly, he goes on to say this. Oh, wait, let me read this before before I I move on to the next one. In John chapter 1, Jesus said, or John writes this, he says, But as many as received him, speaking of Christ, to them he gave the right to become the children of God, to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. I think it's important at at this point that we make something really clear. Believing is bigger than just choosing or verbalizing that you accept certain criteria. It's bigger than that. Believing is, righteousness is, being in a right relationship with God, which means, What you're doing is you're choosing to trust in the name of Jesus. You're choosing to trust in the character of Jesus, in the person of Jesus, in the work of Jesus to pay for your sins. You're choosing to trust. Interesting too that often throughout the Gospels, when it talks about the need to believe, when Jesus talked about believe, he didn't just say, whosoever believed in me will be saved. Whoso believes as in a one point in time, but whoever so believeth is what it says in the Old King James whoever is believing in me. It's this idea of relating to God, continuing to relate to God simply by what he's provided in Jesus. Now, when G, where, or when John talks about this, he says, listen, he equates receiving him to believing in his name to this, what? Being born of God. And notice what he says in verse 13, a latter part of this this. this Scripture on the screen, he says that those who are born not of blood, in other words, not just a natural birth, not just being a physical descendant of Abraham, nor of the will of the flesh. In other words, not saying, okay, I'm going to work hard enough, and then God's going to say, okay, now you're my child. You've done enough, now you're my child. Not that, not the will of flesh. Nor of the will of man. And this is the one I think we have the hardest time with. Nobody chooses to be born of God. They choose to believe in Jesus and ask Him to save them. And God says yes to that every time. It's important to recognize that. You can't just say, you know, I I, I want to be born again. Okay, I'm born again now. It doesn't work that way. It's not like God's of any machine. You can say, okay, I'll have uh, some salvation and a filling of the Holy Spirit and ooh, get the tongues. That'd be nice too. And you put in some money and you get what you want. It doesn't work that way. It doesn't work that way. You by the work of the Spirit, come to realize, I need a Savior. I'm not in right relationship with my God. And God, by His Spirit, says, it's Jesus who can bring you in that relationship with God. It's Jesus who died for your sins to put you in that right relationship with God. And you say, oh God, I believe it. Save me. And God says, yes. God births you into His family by His Spirit. It's not a, salvation. Is not a transaction. It's a transformation. It's not a transaction, man. I think one of the things that we've we've fallen into in modern sort of evangelical circles is okay. Say this prayer and you'll be saved. You know, fill in this card and you'll be saved. And we can get into this thing where we sort of make it such a formula that people go, okay, well, I, I want my life to be better, and, and, I, and, I, and I, I, the idea of hell isn't very tasteful, so how about if I say that prayer, and then I'll be saved from that. And we think, okay, I fill out the card, I said the prayer, I've done my bit of the transaction, i got to believe God's done His bit of the transaction. And then later on, someone starts saying to us, oh, but if you're a Christian now, you got to act this way. And so you think, okay, I guess there's another part of the transaction. Small print in the contract I didn't know about. i got to stop cussing i got to stop smoking. Can't drink so much. You know? Didn't know about that. Got to stop seeing my girlfriend. Ooh, that's a tough one. Oh, we got to stop doing that. Oh, it must be the small print in the contract. Didn't know about. And we get this mindset that says, well, I made that choice. And so isn't it just still my choice to say, well, God, I, I still choose to love you, but I also want to do this thing. Isn't it still my choice? And we treat salvation like some sort of transaction, but it's not. It's a transformation. It's a radical, supernatural thing that God has to do. Our part to play is just to simply respond to the work of the Spirit. When God says, you need Jesus, you say, God, I need Jesus. When God says, if you call upon my name, you be saved. You say, God, I call upon your name, save me. We just respond to the work of the Spirit. And God says, right on. And He saves us. He births us into His kingdom. Guys, it's so important that we recognize this because it's easy for us to think, oh, well, I've said that prayer. I understand justification by faith. I understand that I'm right with God because I said that prayer. Where's your faith? Is it in that prayer? Or is your faith in the finished work of Jesus and you believe, God, you've made me right with you? See the difference? The prayer doesn't make you right with him. Church membership definitely doesn't make you right with him. Jesus makes you right with him. Do you understand? Now, this is great news, guys. It's great news because if we can't do it, then guess what? We can stop trying. <laughs> Have you ever been in a situation that was so overwhelming you just thought, oh, well, I mean, it's just, it's not, you're in that place where you think, it is no way that I can possibly ever sort this out. There's no way. You've thought through it. You've stressed through it. You've dealt with it. There's no other way I can possibly do this. I can't figure this out. And you kind of go, huh, oh well. You just sort of almost have that peace. Like, well, it's so beyond me. I guess something else is going to have to happen or it's not meant to be. You ever been in that situation? Guess what? That's how your salvation works. We have to get to the place where we go, man, I'll never be right with God. I'll never keep the rules enough, I'll never love enough, I'll never do enough stuff, I won't pray enough, read the Bible enough, I'll never be right with God by my works. God, I can't try anymore, it's not going to work. God says, now you're getting it. It ain't about you, it's about me. That's why you have this great phrase in the scripture, salvation is of the Lord. Don't get me wrong, God has... He, he's created you for good works, and God has things that he wants us to do, but we don't do those things for salvation. We do those things because we are saved. We do those things because we want relationship with him and, and with others, and we want others to have relationship with him. Now, now he goes on to say this in, in verse, verse 9. He says, So then, those who are of faith are blessed with believing Abraham. How are they blessed? How was Abraham blessed? Go back to Romans 4 again. This time look at verse 5. Romans chapter 4, verse 5. Same sort of context, same context we just looked at. Same thing Paul is trying to make it clear to those in Rome, as he did to those in Galatia, about the reality that justification comes through faith. Salvation, our, our relationship with God, our righteousness with God, only comes through faith. Faith in what Christ has provided for us. He says in verse five of chapter four of Romans, but to him who does not work, in other words, him who realizes I can't do it anymore. It's not me, Lord, I don't have enough what it takes. I'll never have what it takes. Him who does not work, but believes on him who justifies the ungodly. <laughs> justifies the ungodly. Think about that for a second. That almost seems unjust. How can he justify the ungodly? How do you justify the ungodly except the price be paid at the cross of Christ? Nothing else makes sense. He who justifies the ungodly, listen, he trusts in in him, he believes on him who justifies the ungodly. His faith is accounted for righteousness. That word accounted is so important. We'll come back to that in a second. He says, just as David also described the blessedness of the man to whom God imputes righteousness apart from works. And then he quotes David in Psalm 32 who says this, Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord shall not impute sin. The word for account, accounted in verse 5, the word, for, the word that's imputes in verse 6 and impute in verse 8, all those words have to do with that sort of analogy I used last week of your account, of like a bank account. It's this idea that God says, you're in this massive debt. You you owe 400 billion pounds, and it's gaining interest every day. Now, good advice would be, find a low-interest loan and payments that are manageable to you and start paying down the, your debt. Now, this is kind of what religion is like. Religion says this. Oh, I have good news for you. Here's the good news. I heard about your 400 400 billion pounds in debt. And here's the deal. I found a a, a bank that would be willing to um, give you a loan and help pay off that debt. And they said your monthly payment will start only at two pounds a month. Of course, it'll double every month. But that's another issue. It's only two pounds. And so you hear that and you go, huh. that's not so bad as having, you know, debt collectors come into my house and saying, owe oh, $400 billion. Well, That's not that bad. I, I think I can handle that. But then, you know, there, there's that small print. It doubles every month. And so you think, well, you realize that as it doubles, it's two pounds the first month, and then four pounds, and then eight pounds. You realize that by the time you get to two years, it's about uh, something like 10,000 pounds a month you have to pay. And you're never going to pay that off. And so, so that good news doesn't sound so good. That good advice isn't so great. But the gospel's not that. The gospel's not, I've made it a way for you to pay off your own debt. That's not the gospel. The gospel's not, I've made a way for you to make yourself right with God. That's not the gospel. The gospel is, God says, listen, here's the blessedness. Here's the blessedness of receiving the righteousness of God. The blessedness is, God says, I scoop out that 400 pounds of debt, and I don't chuck it aside. I pay it off. I pay it off. And then I take the riches of heaven, every spiritual blessing, and I deposit it into your account. Can you think? Can you imagine? Can you come up with a bigger blessing than that? When, when David writes in Psalm 32, not even understanding how God's going to atone for our sins completely, not knowing it's going to be the Messiah prophesying to that end, but probably fully not even understanding that yet. He can still say, oh, how blessed it is that my lawless deeds are forgiven. How blessed it is that my sins are covered. How blessed it is that God has not kept in my account my sin. How blessed it is. Do you know that blessing? Do you know that righteousness? Oh, I know it up here, John. I've heard this stuff before. I understand this. I've read theology books. It's right here. I know this. Is it a blessing to you? Are you blessed by that? Are you blessed by the reality that Christ has paid for your sin? See, this is what Abraham had. Yeah, God did eventually give Abraham that promised son, and God did make his descendants as the sands of the seashore. All that stuff was great that that Abraham got. It was all part of the plan of God even to bring the Messiah to us. But here's the reality. You know what Abraham got most out of the deal? He got God. Because God said to Abraham, Abraham, fear not. I am your exceedingly Great reward. Abraham, listen, you trust me for this and you get me. You were created to know your Creator, to abide with Him forever, to be in right relationship with Him forever. You were created for that. That is why you long for purpose. That is why you long for significance. That is why you even come to church. But coming to church isn't what makes you right with God. It's what he provided for you in Jesus that makes you right with God. What makes the good news so good is that it's the gospel of Jesus that provides for our righteousness. And it's a perfect righteousness. The Bible says in 2 Corinthians 5.21 it says that he who knew no sin, speaking of Christ, became sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God. God in Him. How right are you with God? How right was Jesus with God? When the Father spoke of the Son during His ministry, what did He say? This is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. Do you know what He says about you, believer? (laughs) He says, this is my beloved daughter this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased because they've trusted and I've provided through Jesus do you know that blessing? because that's the blessing of having righteousness that's the blessing of being in right relationship with God I'll close with this The Bible says, in Jeremiah 9.23, Thus says the Lord, Let not the wise man glory in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man glory in his might. Let not the rich man glory in his riches. You know, this is what we look for for significance and value, isn't it? Oh, if I can just be smart enough. If I can just be strong enough. If I can just be wealthy enough. If I can do these things, then I'll be blessed. Then I can glory. Nope. God says, but let him who glories glory in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord, exercising loving kindness, judgment, and what? Righteousness in the earth. For in these I delight. The Lord delights in you being right with him. That's why he provided it for you. John Bunny, who wrote Pilgrim's Progress, wrote this little poem. It's a great little poem. Run, John, run, the law commands, but gives him neither feet nor hands. Better news the gospel brings. It bids him fly and gives him wings. God says, be right with me. Here it is. Be righteous before me. Here it is. Come boldly before my throne of grace. Here it is. It's in Jesus. Let's not add to it. Let's not take from it. Let's just believe it.